experience that we have to our senses. Whether of sound, or of lighting, or of touch, is a vibration. Hello and welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about life in medicine. With me, your host, Lily. There are many things that people claim to need in life to survive. Air, food, water, shelter, Netflix, cocaine, the list goes on. But one thing that isn't often mentioned, unless you're a direct descendant of Dracula, is blood. And we need some pretty sturdy vessels to hold that blood if it's going to last us for the rest of our lives. So that's where vascular surgery comes in. It's the branch of surgery that deals with trying to keep people's blood vessels as healthy as they can be against the ravaging adversity of disease. We have with us on the show, the trailblazing Dr. Gabrielle. Welcome. Thank you, Lily, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> and I can't emphasize how important blood is. <laughs> Indeed, blood is very important. And I do quite enjoy that word trailblazing. It's, it's very cool. It makes you think of bushfires and gigantic robots destroying whole cities. So I'm excited to be able to sit down with you and have a quiet, nice, civilized conversation about vascular surgery, which is very refreshing. Now, Dr. Gabrielle, the kingdom of surgery is far and wide. So how did you choose vascular surgery out of its many fiefdoms? Um, uh, by mistake, I would say. <laughs> so uh, I'm told by high school friends that I said when I was 13 that I was going to be a surgeon. Ooh. I don't actually remember that, um, but I was always top top of my class at school in Hong Kong and um, it's it's always assumed if you're a top of your class that you're going to do medicine plus I had medicine in my family so my grandfather was a surgeon in Ireland and he had 12 children and many of them were doctors apart from my father who was a failure and became a judge <gasps> yes <laughs> yes a great disappointment to my grandfather <laughs> anyhow Partly because of the family, I went off to Trinity College in Dublin and did medicine. And um, But I was from Hong Kong, I never felt Irish, and at the end of my six-year course and my intern year there, I still didn't feel Irish really, and there were no jobs. And so I looked around the world and traveled to many different places. Um, I initially thought I was going to do psychiatry, but it took me about six months to realize that that was completely not going oh. to happen. Yeah, I mean, a specialty where people <laughs> joke that you don't touch people, yes. going to a specialty where you cut people. Yes. During, during university days, I had really realized that I didn't like sick people very much. Oh. <laughs> and I kept trying to drop out of medicine and do oh. something else, but um, it never quite happened. And I was always persuaded that I was very lucky to be doing medicine and so continued. Uh, anyway, it became clear to me while I was in New Zealand that surgery was by far the most interesting part of, of medicine. You actually got to do things, it's quite artistic, people either get better or they die, it's very definitive, um, and I really enjoyed that part of it. Why vascular surgery, and that is, um, was just luck. So I had moved, I had started uh, surgical training in New Zealand, but again was not a New Zealander, so was not mm. going to get on there. I was making my way back to Europe and stopped in Hong Kong to see my parents, went to a surgical meeting, met um, a wonderful man called uh, PC Cheng, who ran the surgical unit at Mingoi Iyun in Hong Kong. 
and he offered me a surgical registrar job, which is not something that happens every day. Mm. <laughs> so I started work at this thousand bed hospital in Hong Kong, wow. in one of the poorest areas of Hong Kong. And that was quite an experience. Um, yes, that was a lot of hard work, uh, nightingale wards with 40 patients in them, ward rounds that lasted all day with sweat dripping down me because there was no air conditioning. Wow. <laughs> but it was, it was also a wonderful experience. But again, I was not Chinese, there was 1997 looming, and so I finished that after getting my part one FRACS and went off to London and it became clear in England that you needed a master's degree to get anywhere in surgery. So I was offered three possible um, subjects. One was in breast cancer and I went to a breast clinic and just found the whole thing horrifying. These dozens of lumpy breasts that just um, all looked the same. Um, there was another one in uh, colorectal, um, and I despise poo. And then there was <laughs> leg ulcers. <laughs> and, and you didn't despise them? I didn't. No. <laughs> despite the smell, despite <laughs> everything else, I find leg ulcers fascinating. Excellent. Mainly because uh, leg ulcers have been troubling us from... Uh, from the earliest days. Hippocrates mentions leg ulcers in 500 BC, wow. and the treatment is exactly the same as it is now, which I find absolutely fascinating. So I decided to do the, the um, subject on leg ulcers, and we were looking at, and my master's degree was about the new um, in intervention of duplex Doppler ultrasound. Which uh, Hippocrates obviously had in his time as well. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, slightly... <laughs> he had clinical acumen. <laughs> and a slightly different population, but um, yes, but a very... But yeah, leg ulcers are caused by gravity, and we still have gravity. Mm. We could start a space station for people with leg ulcers, and I've been thinking of talking to Elon Musk about oh, that, yes. and that would work. But yeah, um, Floating would reduce all yeah, the pressure sores. Totally. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. Excellent. We should work on it. Um, um, th I mean, they estimate that it costs us $3 billion a year, uh, wounds. Anyway, so that's how I did my master's degree, and therefore I got sort of moved into the area of vascular surgery and it's a it's a subject that um, I like because it combines a lot of different types of surgery so you're not just stuck on one operation I, I feel that cardiothoracic surgeons um, things are a bit boring because you just kind of do the same operation <laughs> over and over again um, and not only that mm. but there is an awful lot of um, of uh, being a physician in it like an awful lot of it is lifestyle issues now mm. so I get to address a lot of that I feel half physician and half surgeon really Good. a lot of the time which yeah. is um, which is an interesting um, uh, you get to talk to a lot of people about things and uh, to make a difference in that way as well Excellent. There's so many bits in that story. It's so exciting. Uh, first, I just want to say how interesting it is that you, the, all the twists and turns of life brought you here. And then I have so many questions. Like you've lived internationally, and you would be forgiven if you had this mongrel of an accent. But you don't. You don't have part Irish and part New Zealand. You just have the most distinguished sort of British accent. What is your secret to not absorbing like a sponge? 
I think I have to a certain extent in that people get very confused about my accent. Huh. When I'm in uh, England, they say I sound either South African or, uh, or American. Oh. Um, I feel that my accent is, is actually a Hong Kong uh, colonial accent, um, which is, has a slight American twa twang to it. But I am, I have to confess, also married to a Canadian, ah. and so I have picked up a bit of that as well. Certainly no <laughs> Irish, though, that I can detect. No, I don't think so. <laughs> That's true. The other really interesting thing at the very, very beginning of uh, that whole story is that you said your friends could remember you wanting to do surgery, mm. but you actually don't remember. It's, it's a little bit like our, our birthdays, which is just hearsay, the most amazing form of hearsay. We get told by our birth certificate and our parents that you were born on this particular day, but we actually don't know. It's not like we, we remember. No. So it's interesting. What if your friends had told you that you had wanted something else, like to be an astronaut, you know, <laughs> to be well, the next Elon Musk think, or whatever? <laughs> I think what I... What, what I really wanted to do was to be a film director. Oh, wow. I always wanted to do that. Yeah. But that was a bit too scary. Um, and that medicine was just kind of, I was just pushed along that mm. line. Yeah. So, um, yes, I don't know if it would have changed if they had told me anything different, but probably not. <laughs> well, that's why you have your two lovely children, one of which <laughs> is in that industry and living out your dreams. That's great. true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my my darling daughter, who's um, studying at afters at the moment, and um, uh, yes, heavily involved in film direction. Hope hopefully to be very successful. Excellent, excellent. Hopefully this podcast will launch yes. her career. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now back to vascular surgery. So, is there such thing as a typical patient? You mentioned you know that it's a mix of physician and surgery. So, mm. do you have these textbook sort of presentations who walk in or hobble in or? Um, okay, that your your average vascular surgical patient is overweight, has smoked or is still smoking, is diabetic, mm. does very little exercise, and is a bit of a slob. Oh, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, is diabetic foot ulcers your life, or, or is there more to it? Is there more to life than just that? Okay, so the the exciting bits mm. about vascular surgery and what the um, male vascular surgeons live for is the aortic aneurysm, ah, yes. the ruptured aortic aneurysm, the rushing to the hospital in the middle of the night to <laughs> slash and open the patient yeah. and a lot yeah. of blood and guts and gore. In fact, I, um, I, I feel that I'm lucky to have lived on the cusp of the old vascular surgery and new end of endovascular surgery. Mm. So I trained in the era when all the operations were large and long and involved liters of blood, uh, uh, literally blood wow. pouring down my legs into my clogs, literally. Oh. <laughs> um, and they were very successful operations, but they were also, there were also a lot of unsuccessful yeah. operations yeah. and we lost an awful lot of legs. Um, so sort of halfway through my career the endovascular revolution occurred and this involves us having sort of evolved into interventional radiologists where we do things with a minimally invasive puncture into the artery usually the femoral artery and put in wires to get through um, uh, vessels and then either deploy stents to now fix aneurysms or else uh, open up balloons and stents to open up blood supply to get to the leg and it is a far more sophisticated and um, uh, 
clever way of doing things but is not quite as dramatic as mm. the, as the old right. open surgery and a lot of um a lot of people regret that <laughs> like the cinema real the surgeons yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to hear that progress is being made. That's always a very exciting thing. Yeah. But I have to confess that something like uh, AAAs, you know, the textbook case, it's probably not that common. I, I mean, I would say that my most intimate experience with that is sometimes when I lie down at night, I can feel uh-huh. what feels like my heart beating in my stomach. You know, you know why that is, Lily? It's because you're thin. <laughs> most people can't feel that water because we, what is it, 60% of, of Australians are now overweight. So they could not possibly feel the rainwater. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a relief. So I take it that these presentations are maybe not the most common. So they're kind of the rare, interesting ones. So it sounds like most of it is well, lifestyle what, related. What's happened uh, in terms of aortic aneurysms mm. is that because when I first started work as a consultant, I would have dealt with a ruptured aneurysm once a month. Whereas now it's it's rare, mm. and it's partly rare because we image people so often. Yes. They get imaged for everything. You go to a doctor, you get a scan. That's the go-to. Mm. So they get picked up, and we fix them before they rupture. Um, but also, aortic aneurysm disease is becoming less common. Whereas diabetic foot more ulcers common. are much <laughs> okay. more common, much much yeah. more common wounds and diabetic foot ulcers. Yeah. So my interest is kind of um, because my husband used to kind of treat me with scorn for being so interested <laughs> in these things. <laughs> Whereas they're gold, <laughs> believe me. It is a huge. I've I've just come back from the European wound management uh, association meeting in Gothenburg in Sweden and governments are really worried about wounds they are hugely costly to all governments and not only in the developed nations but to those like China and India who are becoming more and more middle class and uh, wealthy Mm -hmm. and so they're now doing all the things that we do that are so bad for us yeah, because life is like that, right? We we look at those most exciting, dramatic things, like you say, like, oh, shark attacks, and we think those yes. kill people. But then it's the mundane yeah. things like driving on the road, which are the real enemy. True. All right, so it sounds like diabetic foot ulcers coming up. What about other vessels? You know, like upper limb vessels. Is there much stuff that happens there? Is it mostly lower limb? It's mostly lower limb, and it's because of the effects of... Gravity? Gravity, yeah. Gravity <laughs> and um, the, uh, the fact that the arms are very close to the heart, mm-hmm. so you very, very seldom get atherosclerosis in the arteries in your arms. I, I see occasionally a, a, there's a, there's a disease called Burgess disease, in which it's usually young men who smoke sort of 60 to 80 a day, and who has oh. the money or time to yeah. smoke 60 or 80 a day, right? Yeah. But they did. Um, so if you put them all in your mouth at the same time. Possibly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or just like one constantly. Yeah. And so they would end up with ulceration of their fingertips, right. and I have on a few occasions had to amputate fingers right. um, because of that. But mostly atherosclerosis is confined to the yeah. legs where it, it happens much more often. Yeah. Yeah. What about the neck and the head? So the neck has the carotid artery. Yes. Now the carotid artery is also a very exciting artery that people love, you know, real surgeons really love, because you get to do the carotid endarterectomies. Mm. But those also have been affected by the endovascular revolution where you can also put a wire up and stick a stent in. Also quite exciting, but not as exciting as a nice open 
uh, operation. Mm. So I do love the carotid. <laughs> um, but again, uh, one of the things that's happened in, in vascular surgery is that there has been an erosion of territory. Um, it's happened in a number of different um, uh, medical fields as well, not just vascular mm. surgery. I, I don't know if you remember a, um, a, a film called The Fugitive. Harrison Ford? Um, yes, okay. exactly. Now, Harrison Ford was the goodie, and he was the vascular surgeon. Ah, the just bad, like real life. <laughs> exactly. The baddie was the cardiologist. <gasps> and cardiologists, because what they do, spend most of their time doing, is putting wires up mm. into coronary arteries. They have discovered that they can put them into other arteries as well, and so have started taking over territory, ah. one of which is the carotid artery. Yes. So in the States, for example, in the United States, um, uh, cardiologists do an awful lot of the work that, um, that vascular surgeons do, um, as do interventional radiologists. So we have this, uh, this sort of overlap of territory between mm. vascular surgeons, uh, cardiologists, and interventional radiologists. And there's a certain amount of enmity between oh, them as a result no. because they're tapping, you're taking away your um, your income. Ah, so uh, it's not teamwork. Like say, um, say respiratory with DVTs, is there a bit of overlap, or is it actually like territorial? Okay, well, yeah, with respiratory, it's it's uh, I would say it's collaborative. Oh, good, so, good. Um, but, but in terms <laughs> of the others, it's definitely there's definitely some. Um, uh, there is a certain amount of well, it's all about income, yes. isn't it? Yeah. So there is uh, there is some enmity involved, and a bit of turf war going uh. on. I mean, the cardiothoracic surgeons actually missed the boat in this country by not embracing the endovascular work. They're now beginning to get into it with TAVIs, you know, um, endovascular uh, valve replacement, but they kind of scorned the whole thing as not being real surgery. If you're not <laughs> you know, opening up a sternum and ripping into oh. the heart. It's not real surgery. Um, but they they have felt the uh, they've lost they've lost jobs and um, oh. and work as a result of that. So we've been very clever mm. as interventional radiologists. Uh, sorry, <gasps> that was fine. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> After being a filmmaker, that was your next real ambition. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of vascular surgery, we've been very clever mm. because we've taken it on and we've we own it mm. um which has been to our benefit and it's it's fascinating work it is really fascinating work yeah i think by that surgeon logic i often do surgery when i get a whole chicken and i cook it and i rip it open but speaking of animals sometimes i feel like the rest of the animal kingdom has it right when if dogs want to mark their territory they'll just go urinate on it like, why do you have to fight over money in patient care but but it's important yeah, it's for people to yeah. <laughs> it's important for people to know this before going into the specialty yeah. to, to know what sort of tasks they'll be doing mm. and yeah. business is a big part of mm. um running a practice which we yeah. never get taught about in your training i mean in training it's mm. all about you know um pathology the risks mechanism, and the, yeah. yes and the the uh, possible complications and mm, yeah. dealing with those and knowing what you and making a diagnosis yeah. etc but when you go into practice there is a huge amount of business that you yeah. need to know and um, I was clever enough to marry somebody who does all that <laughs> excellent <laughs> which in fact a lot of surgeons do they um, marry the person who looks after their, the business side oh, of their or certainly become secretarial yes um, I mean my husband doesn't do the secretarial work but he 
he manages the mm. secretaries and uh, my vascular lab, which is very helpful. Excellent. And he was there for my children, which I was not entirely able to be. Um, which um, is there some regret there? Perhaps a tiny bit of regret. Um, I think women always have a bit of a guilt trip about not being there for the kids. Um, but I have to say, I have two incredibly well-adjusted and happy kids. So. <laughs> well-adjusted is good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, I guess from a business strategic point of view, that's great when your partner helps you do all that monetary yeah. stuff. But you could say from a philosophical point of view, maybe it's just part of being a good partner is that you take on the interests of the other person. And, and so I like to think of that way too. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that is, yes, that is the ideal partner. Um, uh, more recently, um, unfortunately, women are being caught in, you know, now that we are doing the jobs mm. and the highly paid jobs, um, there are female surgeons that I know who've married men who have taken advantage of that rather than being the helper. Mm. So they have not been a terribly good wifely role, you know, yeah. they don't do the cooking and cleaning and that sort of thing. And they have been very happy to spend the the rewards of yeah. the job. And there have been a couple of very nasty divorces as a result yeah. of those things. So, I, you know, it's, uh, it's a tricky paradigm. So it sounds like the secret there, if there is a secret, might be at the beginning to try and pick the right person, kind of prevention. And I guess that parallels vascular surgery where it sounds like a lot of it mm. now is prevention in lifestyle and trying to stop people from getting to these sort of vascular endpoints. Yes, one, one of the biggest problems that I face is the obesity em yeah. epidemic. Now, a lot, of, um, a lot of people hate that term. There are a huge number of internet sites about how, um, how fat-shaming doctors are, but realistically, mm -hmm. um, obesity is responsible for a huge amount of our um, uh, chronic disease. And I have, whereas 10 years ago, I would have been much more careful mm -hmm. about addressing it with a patient. You know, for some reason we, well, maybe for obvious reasons, but we, we very much equate fat with being ugly or you know being thin with being gorgeous mm. and so it has whereas if you speak to a smoker about smoking mm. it doesn't have those sort of overtones you know everybody feels embarrassed about smoking now mm. if, if I ask a patient if they smoke they'll go oh well yes well I was given <laughs> cigarettes in the army or everybody smoked when I was yeah. young or I have to smoke you yeah know, that sort of thing <laughs> um you know this is, but if you talk to people about obesity they can become very um Aggressive. Often, mm. uh, women I speak to will burst into tears. Um, it's a very emotional issue. Um, but I teach medical students now that you really have no choice but to address it head on. You really yeah. do have to address it. It is um, an enormous health problem. And you have to do it with empathy, with enormous empathy. And you have to give solutions. So mm. it does, it is a time... Um, it takes a lot of time to address it, and you have to be prepared to um, go through all those things. Um, I always weigh people now so that they can see yeah. the results, and I always try and um, refer them to 
something like Weight Watchers or a personal trainer or give them options in those terms because it is such an important part of it. Now there are lots of practitioners out there who will go, oh, it's impossible, nobody, nobody will lose weight. Um, the orthopedic surgeons are very fond of saying that because they make huge amounts of money out of treating yeah. the, the knee and hip disease that you get out of being obese. Conflicting <laughs> uh, interest there. Very <laughs> it's a bit like going to your mechanic, your car mechanic, mm. who goes, oh yes, you know, you need a new big end or blah, 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 <laughs> and you have no idea what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah. But you go, all right, well, fine. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I, I believe that we need to... Uh, we need a different way of addressing the problem. It needs to be, I, I'm asking the hospitals at the moment for an obesity team. Mm -hmm. So when a patient gets admitted, and the majority of our patients admitted to hospital now are admitted and they are obese, mm -hmm. and they've got their disease because they're obese. So we need this obesity team that has a dietitian that understands weight loss, and yep. believe me, the dietitians that are present in hospital have no idea about weight loss. Their whole role is to improve people. So if they see a wound, mm -hmm. they want to give them extra calories so that yeah. they can... Yeah, they're more fo focused on malnutrition because yes, I guess it's a bigger, exactly. bigger issue. I mean, well, it isn't well, a bigger sounds issue. Sounds like a terrible <laughs> pun. You know, you know what I mean. That's, it's more the... That's more life-threatening issue. They, yes, they, yes. They're obviously taught to look at that, whereas they really need to get their heads around obesity. Mm. So we need a dietitian, we need an exercise physiologist, we need a psychologist because mm. so much of obesity is um, connected with abuse in the past. Um, I think an awful lot of women that I see there has been sexual abuse in the past and they're covering themselves up um, because of that. So it, it does require a multidisciplinary team, but we need to address it. Whereas people go into hospital and it's not addressed at all, um, yeah. which is very frustrating. Because if you do address it, I have, lots of um, success stories in which people have come back and said I feel like a new person I can now walk without pain I can play with my grandkids mm. like you know there are huge benefits to it it sounds like your aim is to put yourself out of a job and then you'll have been <laughs> successful I like that yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, have, I have several theories about obesity actually so actually okay, it's yeah. not quite a theory but in India for example it's actually a sign of wealth yes. to have a bit more yes, body assets, I suppose. Yeah, so it's just interesting how our views have changed. As to but, Lenny, yeah. just to interrupt, yeah. it's strange that yeah. here in Australia, the lower socioeconomic groups are, are the obese ones. Mm. Whereas in India, if you're poor, yeah, you're skinny. It's the other way around. Here, you're fat if yeah. you're um, poor. And it's because we are not really as poor as yes. Um, yes. you know starving societies are yeah. and in this country it's just cheaper to eat horrible food or yeah. terrible food <laughs> I mean I've heard how in the US it's cheaper to buy McDonald's yeah. than to get fresh fruit and vegetables yeah, exactly yeah. whereas realistically if you look at the sort of climatic mm. um, uh, uh, um, the climatic uh, it's cool. I can edit this yeah. pause out. Or I can leave it in because it's kind of funny. Well, <laughs> you, you know the way cows produce so much carbon dioxide and we oh, shouldn't yes. be eating cows. So if you equate yes. the climatic effects of yes. eating meat, a McDonald's should cost $100 for a McDonald's. Mm. That's what we should be paying. But we're, paying, we're buying all this cheap meat, which is yeah. affecting the, um, the global climate um, yeah. and also making people sick. 
so two <laughs> so it's costing us on yeah. so many levels yeah yeah and i think you raised a really intriguing point before about why do people maybe not get so touchy about smoking maybe a little bit defensive sometimes but not personally attacked yeah. but with their body image it mm. is and i guess it's because smoking is maybe something you do whereas your yeah. image is something that's part that of you, you are like, yeah. and and i think there is you know i i sympathize that people who are overweight are assumed to be lazy, um, incompetent. Um, you know, there are a lot. There are a lot of bad things associated with it. Whereas a smoker is just a smoker. You know, you are. You may you may be nervous and have mental health problems, but you're not lazy and and stupid. Yeah, which, if anything, to... you must be quite wealthy to afford them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so there are a lot of conceptions that come with it. And I will say sometimes these will be true. Sometimes they won't be. So. It's just each person is a person. So, yes, that definitely complicates it. So there's mm -hmm. this, in vascular surgery, it sounds like it's not just, I will cut off your leg or I will do this and I will fix you. It's like, I need you to change something yeah. in your life and then I can help you. Yes, yeah. and I, have, I do do that. I mean, people come to me with varicose veins and I say, mm, the issue here is that you weigh 150 kilos. Mm. If you lose 50 kilos, I would be very happy to remove your veins, but you need to do that first. And how often do they actually do that? It's surprising how yeah. often they do that if they're given a goal. Ah, so it has to be a specific goal and uh, yes. then they can do it. I mean, in, in the UK now, mm. GPs are actually writing prescriptions for exercise. And human beings are very, um, are very susceptible to... Um, it's why advertising mm. works. You see something written down and you believe it and do it. Mm. Um, whereas just being told something is not nearly so powerful. That's right. In fact, it can make yeah. people do the opposite. I think they did that yeah. study about politics where if they told you to vote for someone, you were less likely to go vote. But if they asked you, have you thought about voting for Dr. Gabriel for president? Then people will sort of simmer on it and then eventually subconsciously they'll uh, think it came from themselves right. and they're more likely to do it. Something like Interesting. that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I can see that working. Yeah. yeah. It's the power of suggestion. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, advertising is incredibly mm. powerful. The other thing, my other bugbear, mm. is the ointments and lotions and potions oh, that are yes. used on ulcers. Almost every, the first question yes. I get asked by every nurse, patient, GP about an ulcer is what should I put on this ulcer to make it better? Um, <laughs> is there anything? No, unfortunately, <laughs> there is nothing except sorbeline cream, make it less dry. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, oh, no. I was even asked to go over to Papua New Guinea at one stage um, to see why they were cutting off so many legs. Yeah. Um, this was with the with Ausaid, and it was a fascinating trip to which I made my husband come because there had been various. Um, doctors raped over there so mm. I insisted that he come with me it's a very male society honestly I've never been anywhere like it he sounds very multi-purpose he's helping he's you with the business he's protecting <laughs> you excellent he flies airplanes too oh, very yes. useful very good um, so he came with me and uh, what they do if they get a wound on their leg mm. is they go to the witch doctor the witch doctor makes up some sort of paste they put the paste on the wound it either gets better or else it gets infected because yes, the paste the is not very yes. <laughs> sterile and, and then they either have to have the leg off or else they as i say they're better yeah. but we do exactly the same here but for an infinitely greater amount of money so yeah. um the uh, pharmaceutical companies love wounds because they 
have developed all these amazing wound dressings that become increasingly more expensive yeah. and they sell them to the nurses who have all these meetings that um, spruik the different when you should use this one mm -hmm. against that one the bottom line about a wound is you have to figure out why it's not healing because the human body has an incredible capacity to heal but doesn't if you don't work out why it isn't healing yeah so i like that there's a lot of science behind this vascular yeah. surgery thing yeah. you know it, it's quite good i mean you were interested in going into psychiatry which is a, a little bit more murky sort of territory this is this is very much more definite and precise i think definitely yeah. uh, i was far too empathic to be a psychiatrist i still one of my best friends is one of my first psychiatric patients <laughs> Oh. And, and now you've gone to the industry where you tell people to stop putting pesto on there. Yes. I just I just treat their wounds and yeah, chop off bits and fix stuff. Well, on, on that note, of all the many possible outcomes, like curing people, repairing a little bit, maybe making their legs less bad, amputating, or not being able to do anything, what is the general mix of outcomes for your patients? Oh, I would say all very positive. Well, I, I mean. Yeah. Uh, as a vascular surgeon, one of the mm. other things is that you see people for an awful long period of time. Ah, yes. So it's not it's not like having appendicitis mm. where you take the appendix out. That's it. Yes. You're never going to have appendicitis again. And I say this to my patients who have veins. No matter how many times I treat these veins, they will always come back again, mm. and you will have varicose veins. Or do you mean veins? Var in no, everybody has veins. Varicose veins. Those veins. Yeah. Um, but also arterial disease. Yes. Okay. Is something that. So you see patients for years at mm. a time. So I know people, I've been in practice now for 30 years, mm. and so I know people terribly well and have um, uh, enormously good relations with them. And yeah. I know their families and their stories, and that's also another lovely part of it. But I also see them die. Mm. But they die as old people. I, I do not think I would be able to cope as a pediatric surgeon because I wouldn't yeah. cope with young people dying um, so I guess if you follow them for long enough something will happen but it's not as a result of terrible it's preventable age. disease it's, it's just age natural. yeah the yeah. other thing that we're suffering from is age we are living too it's killing long us yeah it, it is killing, <laughs> it's killing us. us or it's not killing us actually yeah <laughs> one of the things that that I find so annoying at the moment is all the statistics that are constantly fed into us mm. about how modern medicine is doing us so much harm. You go into hospital mm. and this um, misadventure is killing, is responsible for so many yeah. mistakes. Realistically, modern medicine is incredible mm. and it's why we are living so often to well into our 90s and now I have patients in their hundreds wow. um, who walk in here. Yeah. Um, and met most people in their late 90s and 100 are not happy it's not fun being in your 90s <laughs> it's not you can't do the things you used to do i mean maybe we will get to the point where our medicine will um, make it fun but it's not now and so we now are faced with um, the uh, um, end of life decisions yes. you know do i get the right to say when i die and as a baby boomer myself i very much want that decision I very much want it. I want to be able to say, I have had enough now. <laughs> I'm just going to press this button. <laughs> yeah, Things I'm, will terminate. I'm say, yeah. I, um, with my family around me, I can say, oh, I've yeah. had enough. Yeah. I have a 98-year-old mother. She, she's actually 98 on the 15th of this month. And she has had a, a, a fantastic life. Mm. 
Uh, but my father died. She was married for 64 years. And my father, who was a wonderful man, died um, two years ago. Yeah. Is it two, yeah, two years ago. And she just assumed that she would die when he died. And she, every day she goes to bed wishing that she wouldn't yeah. wake up. Um, and, you know, she, she said to me once, um, I know you can organize this for me. You know, please make sure I don't wake up in the morning. And I said, Mom, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I would go to prison. And she looked at me and said, for how long? <laughs> this is a little bit dark, but such is the nature of true love. It's, it's quite a romantic story I in know. a way. <laughs> it, show, it, shows, it, shows, it shows my mother's stiffer upper lip. She's mm. British, very British. <laughs> wow. She lived through the Second World War. She knows what's what. Amazing, amazing. And, and speaking of this older age, how do you decide when you can operate on people and when you can't? Um, well, that's generally up to annoying anaesthetists. Oh, <laughs> generally, so okay. you can operate on people. Oh, so um, it's not really a vascular call about whether something's isn't operable. really. Okay. I mean, generally, they've yeah. come to you because they're utterly miserable, and oh. you have a solution. If you don't do it, they're going to continue being utterly miserable. Yeah. Is that sensible? No, it's not sensible. Okay. But you then send them off to the public hospital yes. where they get seen by an anaesthetist who mm. thinks of every possible reason mm. why they shouldn't be operated on and sends them off for numerous tests. Yeah. Yes. And I find that the most fr frustrating thing of all. Um, but necessary, I'm sure. Well, uh, well <laughs> to a certain extent, one of the things that's happened with endovascular surgery, mm. so minimally invasive surgery, mm. is we've got rid of anaesthetists. Oh, we amazing. can do an awful lot of things just with local anaesthetic and yeah. a little bit of sedation, and we don't need an anaesthetist. Wow. So um, I spend an awful lot of time with no anaesthetics now and it's wonderful. <laughs> so is most of your day operative or sort of clinic based? Okay, work? so I would say half-half. Um, uh, oh, that's a good uh, mix. It yeah. is a good mix. Yeah. It's a really good mix. And, and of, the, of the operating, half is in private and half is in public, which is also oh, a very good mix. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I, I, um, I compare the public system and the private system like capitalism and communism. So the public hospital is communism, where everybody is getting paid no matter how long mm. it takes, and therefore a list, maybe you'll get through two patients, whereas in the private system, the capitalist system, you'll get through six patients <laughs> at, with just as good a result, but it all goes so much faster yeah, because... when the motivation yes, is there. It's different. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. So you must have done a lot of surgeries. I don't know if people keep count of this sort of thing. No, but you must, I, you must I have done have, a lot. But I've done a lot. Yes, yeah. I have done a lot. And so out of all these things, out of all your careers so far, what has been your most challenging challenge to date? Oh, um, I think um, I think the most challenging thing is dealing with uh, cases that go wrong. Mm. And there are cases that go wrong. I remember at medical school, um, one professor, and I don't know if he was just trying to be mean or not, but he said, um, you will kill people. Ooh. And unfortunately, that's true. You do kill people. Um, sometimes it's um, it just seems to be something that you cannot um, prevent. Um, you're doing everything that you know should work mm. and things just don't go right. And then there are sometimes some very bizarre things that happen. And I'll tell you this story because it's interesting. So for a while I had a secretary 
who was um, psychic. Um, oh, oh, I thought you were going to say you killed your secretary no, in some no, bizarre no. way. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, okay, please go on. And she was, she was, she was, she was, was. a little, she was a little strange. Yeah, she's no longer my secretary. She moved on to better things. She's no longer I'm with saying. Us. Okay, right. uh, she moved on to better things. Okay, but she was psychic, and mm. she would. For example, um, I was due to go on leave just before 9-11 happened, oh, well, which of course yeah. I didn't foresee. But she did. Well, she said, just before I left, she came to me and said, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting back um, in this really kind of creepy way. And I was <laughs> sort of, what is this all about? And then while we were away, 9-11 yeah. happened oh, wow. and it, it, it did complicate things enormously. Anyway. I once saw this patient and he had an aortic aneurysm mm. and it was a big aneurysm and I um, advised that he should have repair of this aneurysm and he went to a private hospital to have it done but the secretary came to me and said he will survive the operation but he will then die and I said to her don't tell me this <laughs> I supposed to do well, with I that? I can't tell if she's a very good or a very bad psychic. Because I mean, he will die one day. True, true. There is that. There is that. Wow. Anyway, I, it made me paranoid. Right? Yes, I can imagine. I mean, I couldn't sort of phone him and say I'm not going to do this operation yeah. because my secretary says you're not going to survive mm. this. But so I did the operation. Yeah. I was paranoid. I made every you know I made him stay in intensive care for an extra two days or something. Um, so he. The operation went perfectly well. He went into the mm. intensive care unit. They kept saying, he's all right to go to the ward now. And I would go, just make sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll keep him another day. Finally, he went up to the ward and I got um, a cardiologist to follow him. And he just deteriorated over the next couple of weeks and died for absolutely no particular reason, but oh. just did. Now, that's incredible incredibly frustrating yeah. and sad because um, most of the time you're totally in control as a yeah. surgeon. I, I, have, I have been accused, I was accused by one patient who wrote a complaint to the Healthcare Complaints Commissioner that I was a control freak. And you have to respond to yeah. these Yeah, but I mean, that's complaints. kind of a good thing in a doctor. Well, that's what I, that was my reply. <laughs> yes. My reply was, I think if you want anybody in your life to be a control freak, it is your vascular surgeon. Mm. <laughs> you know, let go of the clamp and you're going to bleed yeah. to death. Like, uh, um, Yeah, so it's uh, the times that have been most sad is when things yeah. have gone wrong and I've... Um, I've seen people either suffer or die and I felt that it was that it shouldn't have happened and then how do you how do you comfort yourself or comfort people around you is it just reminding yourself that you did everything you could yeah. with your control freak powers you know yeah. is that the way to do it um, it it gets easier with age um, and experience uh, as a young doctor I think it's one of the most traumatic things that you ever have to face and there's often a lot of blame that you put on yourself I, I think you'll read that in in many things about why uh, medics can have such a high suicide rate is that we are type A personalities and we expect everything to go right and we assume that we're responsible for everything and so it's very hard to accept defeat and there is an, a tendency to blame yourself for it. Um, I you need to be kinder to yourself and to be more accepting. I, I just read a wonderful thing um, by um, a, a wonderful 
um, pediatric neurologist called Paddy Duan, who um, works a lot in the third world. And he went to see this child who um, had an inoperative tumor and he, the child was 10 years old and he spoke to the family and their response and said, your child is going to die. And their response was, isn't it wonderful that we've had this wonderful child for 10 years? Mm, that's so positive, yeah. And he compares that with another family, you, you know, probably here, who are doing everything possible to get um, new doctors from the States or Germany or something and are just, you know, in bits because they can't do anything about it and, and making everything so miserable. So you need to accept that life ends <laughs> and that sometimes you can't do you you can't make um, a difference you know it things happen and it doesn't always go your way and as I say it, that does it's one of the nice things about getting old <laughs> <laughs> there are nice things about getting old it's good to hear, good to hear. <laughs> and it, yeah it seems so important about perspective I mean I, recently I was sitting in a room with a bunch of other doctors and someone was talking about the surgical examination mm. and how to uh, get on and um, you know he was quoting these sort of stats that people hear like oh no it's only a 50% pass rate it's a 50% fail rate and when they said 50% fail rate I was like yeah but it's 50% pass rate and for some reason everybody laughed at me and I don't know why <laughs> but you know glass half full yeah. sort of thing yeah true yeah. and I would say that it is a question of stamina hmm. uh, I honestly you know you hear these stats but um, in the end it's about your determination and stamina mm -hmm. um, and uh, even if you do fail um, you can do it again or you can do you know what you've done mm -hmm. is never wasted I think yeah. Life particularly experience. in medicine yeah. Yeah. yeah so it um, surgery has that notoriously sort of hectic reputation about being mm. difficult to get on the program that sort of thing mm. do you think there is such a thing as someone just not cut out for it who should just quit and go home from the very beginning or is it always a case of if you want it badly enough you should do it you can do it um, I, I remember <laughs> giving a, uh, a speech about women in surgery mm. and afterwards um, uh, a young woman came up to me and said um, and my mother is a general practitioner on the North Shore she works two days a week and that's what I want to do and I said great <laughs> That's what you should do. <laughs> so, yeah, not everybody wants to do surgery. And I do think that you have to um, really want it. Um, I, I, I feel that it, um, you know, uh, you do have to be prepared for the fact that it is not um, a cushy job in terms of time. It takes a lot of time. It will always take a lot of time your whole life. Mm. You have to put a you have to put a lot of time into it. So um, I would say that I still work very long hours compared to uh, my um, peers yeah. in other, um, I mean, most of my peers are now re retiring happily. Uh, I enjoy surgery so much that I, I can't think of that at the moment. Good, excellent, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're also sort of, you know, I now have seen so much and I feel that I'm at the top of my game, so why would I give it up now, sort of thing. Um, but you do have to be prepared for long hours. Um, there's no point doing it if you uh, are not prepared to put the time in for it. So that's probably the, the most um, 
important aspect of it. If you're prepared to do that, then I think that you should just go for it. I think that it, well, I'm a proof that you can have children and um, do surgery. Good. <laughs> um, I love having children. Um, being pregnant is awful. <laughs> if you could just outsource that. I thought that was the time when your hair glows and you feel at one with nature and all I that I think very few women glow when they're pregnant. <laughs> Mostly it's a state of chronic illness. Well, you get to eat as much as you want and whatever uh, you want. But you feel sick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you That's get okay. terrible heartburn. Oh. <laughs> you you mm. really... In fact, and I was training while I was pregnant. Mm. And I remember coming home at the end of the day and there was nothing in the house to eat. And I was, do I go out to the shops and buy something or do I go to sleep? Oh, you just and curled up in a ball. Sleep. Sleep. Yes, oh. sleep always wins. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm afraid we have very different priorities. <laughs> well, you just wait. You just wait. It is incredibly tiring. All right. Well, I feel our conversation is getting to this critical point. So now I'm going to get a little bit abstract. In my hands, I hold this... Uh, metaphorical invisible object and it is a can and it is a can full of worms and these worms are gigantic and springy and ready to leap out and now I'm going to open this can and ask you what is the work culture like in surgery particularly as we're talking about women for women yes yes okay well um, <laughs> it is still fairly toxic <laughs> um, it is certainly better um, is it better no it is better it is better um, uh, I have to say that in my training, I was not, I was not um, subject to um, a huge amount of overt uh, bullying, um, but there was uh, there was a lot of negativity. Mm. So I was constantly told, I would sit in uh, tea rooms where the, there were all male surgeons and they would go, oh, it would be impossible for a woman to be a surgeon. And I was, I think that I had enough, um, uh, I, I, I had a very privileged upbringing and I think I had enough in me to just consider these men rude and um, I paid no attention to them and I would generally get out of it by agreeing with them and going yeah you're right it would be impossible for a woman to be a surgeon and then going and then, doing it exactly that, <laughs> then that ends yes. the conversation yes. whereas if you get all oh of course women can you know yes. that's, that's what they're looking for um, so but there as I went on in my career particularly when I became a consultant mm. I became aware of overt sexual harassment towards women and and you become aware of the constant little um, digs that you get the uh, male patients who call you love or um, darling or um, try and put you down because you're the doctor and they're the patient and they don't like that um, that that's not the way they see a male female relationship mm. um, uh, but they don't call you nurse anymore they they don't call you nurse but they but they do um try and uh trivialize you mm. they do try and trivialize you and i now call it out so i used to um just overlook it i now don't i i even have a handout there's this wonderful article mm. about that's called call me doctor and I hand it to men and say, don't do this. Um, so I have far less tolerance for it. Um, but 
um, there were much worse things going on than I ever experienced. And it was only when I became a consultant and had wonderful female registrars that it became clear to me what really the extent of the problem. And it became clear that women were being um, harassed for sexual favors. And I found that absolutely abhorrent. Um, I had several uh, female registrars that um, uh, were put in this position and um, either their careers disappeared or else they were enormously disadvantaged by it. Um, so I started writing articles about it. Um, I, I have three sisters, no brothers, I have three sisters. I adore my sisters. Mm. Uh, maybe that's why I care so much about my female colleagues, but um, uh, I found this just untenable, you know. Yeah, and also it is quite chilling, this Illuminati style mm. underground, you know, affecting people's careers. Like we, sometimes we hear about it and we think, oh, that's just some some remote story, but you actually saw, maybe not firsthand, I don't think you were there when it happened, no. but, but you had experience <laughs> with people who had this happen to them. It's like actually real. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have also been in a situation in London when I was working at a hospital where a young woman came in and had been raped, a date rape, wow. and you know she was uh, American. She was twenty-one. She was a virgin. She was traveling from um, on this European um, art tour with a group of other art students. She'd met this um, very posh chap at a pub. He had invited her out the next night. He'd taken her back to his house. They had dinner, and then he raped her. And then he called a taxi to take her home. And, you know, she came, to, walked into this hospital mm. utterly distraught. Yeah. And you you know how that would go if you called the police. Oh, so you were in his house and you had agreed to go there. And what were you wearing? You know, all that, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I just find the whole thing mm. appalling. Anyway, I started writing um, articles about this. I sent it to friends, you know, I... Uh, but I certainly didn't have a platform to to um, go from and uh, I finally was put in touch with a wonderful woman called Diane Rogers Healy who runs a thing called the Australian Centre for Leadership for Women and she was putting together an e-book um, called uh, Gender, uh, sorry, The Role of Merit and Quotas um, for uh, promotion of women and I really didn't understand properly how what a what a flawed concept merit is I, I had like most people always assumed you know the person that gets the job is mm. the most meritorious is the person who's the most qualified has the most but it is such a flawed concept when you really look at it um, you know if you if, if there's a panel of white old men then they will pick the white young man to follow in their footsteps because that's what how they see what the job needs. In which case, you could still say it's merit, but the merit is a list of hidden characteristics yes, that are absolutely. not the, on the unconscious list. bias is enormous mm. that we face as women. Um, uh, there's another story I was told and she came to speak to the College of Surgeons she's head of Film Australia and most um, 
orchestras in the world, mm. you know, famous orchestras, are 70% men and 30% women. And they did this experiment where they did an audition. Oh, is that the blind audition? Yeah, yes, so yes. they put a curtain and mm. they got the, the, um, the musicians to mm. go up and play. And firstly, they again got 70% men and 30% women. They then got them to repeat it by taking their shoes off. So they walked on and you couldn't hear them walking on and they then got 50-50. So not only was there, you know, the people were working out if it was a man and woman from their (laughs) shoes as they walked on. It was incredible. Anyway, I started writing articles. There was that terrible rape of the, the Indian girl... Um, she, I think she was an Indian medical student or a physio student in 2014 and that's when I started writing mm-hmm. and then um, the case of Caroline Tan the neurosurgeon came up and um, Diane asked me to write this chapter about um, women in medicine uh, I really tried not to do it because I have so little time and that's why you're doing this podcast <laughs> I feel special <laughs> You are special, Lily. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you. She means that in a good way. <laughs> yes, you are. Please go on, go on. Um, so I remember writing one of the, uh, my chapter. Mm. My daughter at the time had a party with about 110 people downstairs wow. <laughs> with the music blaring and it was two o'clock in the morning and every now and then somebody would wander up the stairs which was a no-go yeah. zone and say mrs millie could i use the toilet up here <laughs> i would go no <laughs> yeah. conditions very conducive yeah, to a good right, book chapter yeah, right <laughs> anyway so it always brings back that party mm. to me um Anyway, um, so I finished that and then was asked to, um, there was going to be a book launch at New South Wales Parliament building in um, Sydney mm-hmm. the day before International Women's Day in 2015. And um, there were several notable personalities going to be there. But Diane said to me in a rather conspiratorial tone, <laughs> I'm giving you the last speech as a platform. And that made me extremely nervous because I wasn't sure I wanted a platform <laughs> at this point. Um, uh, and um, I was contacted by media and uh, said, no, I, I don't have any time to give an interview beforehand, but I will be there. And fortunately, uh, um, at the time, because women's events always um attract so little media attention they'd sent their very junior um reporter to cover it i gave a speech that covered the fact that all of us who'd written chapters for this book so there were lawyers there were journalists there were engineers um we had all identified that the things that hold women back from promotion to the upper echelons are that we are firmly responsible for our home and our children, whereas men aren't, um, and sexual harassment. And none of us had talked to each other, but those came across clearly. So my speech um, was along those lines, and um, then I finished and felt enormously relieved. And then I was approached by this young woman, Alice Matthews, um, for, uh, for an interview, and um, I got talking to her and my daughter was there. They were about the same age. We all got on terribly well. I 
was very relaxed and um, lulled into a full sense of security. <laughs> Alice asked if she could interview me and tape it, and I said, of course you can. And then she asked me, is there really sexual harassment in surgery? And I said, of course. I, I told her the story of Caroline Tan and about how she'd been lured to a surgeon who was essentially, um, uh, what's the word for it? Um, supervisor? He was her yeah. supervisor, but he was grooming her mm. for this. So he asked her back to his rooms, he took down his pants and took out his dick and um, Caroline ran off. But I said the problem was that in terms of her career, she would have been much better that night to have given him a blowjob, as it turned out. Um, now, little did I realize that that sound bite was media gold, and I was woken at 2 a.m. the next morning by friends in Paris going, are you all right? <laughs> what have you done? And suddenly there was this huge mm. media furor, and I think it was so huge because every woman in the world recognized how true this is and it just shows how broken the system must be if that kind of thing is a statement that you can make yeah i mean i remember the next day going to see a patient in a hospital mm. uh, here um she was in her 90s and she said thank you so much for um for uh, for saying what you did mm. when i started work as an 18 year old secretary i was told if you don't undo your top buttons of your shirt you won't get very far Wow. You know, a little uh, less obvious than the blowjob, yeah. but um, but across yeah. industries, yeah. across yeah, absolutely. And you, we now have the whole Me Too movement, etc., which has um, shown how uh, how it affects all women in in every industry. Um, you would think in surgery, where we're the top, you know, one percent of the population, that it would be different, but it isn't different, and it is creepy and the. Part of the problem is that you are so dependent on mm. your supervisor. So you have to please your supervisor. You have to make them like you. Um, and some, uh, some of the guys even um, have this perception, you're lucky, you can sleep with him and you can get the job. You know, mm. uh, truly, they think that. <laughs> um, but it's repulsive that you should even have to think along those lines. So. There was this huge me media furor. And can I just add, I've tricked you into repeating the same statement, so maybe this will go viral too? Possibly. <laughs> I, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I was asked to go on Triple J. I was asked yeah. to go on radio in Ireland. I was asked um, for numerous uh, uh, articles. I, I, I was... Um, approached by Lee Sales for 7.30. Oh. That is the scariest thing I've ever done, <laughs> seriously. Uh, gosh, I have huge um, respect for journalists and... Um, so you did go on all these and I you did, did talk to these people? I and did. That, that must have been quite an experience. It was. Yeah. It, was it was much more frightening than surgery, I can tell you. <laughs> much more. Because nothing prepares you for it, I think. No. And, and, you're, and you're so... Yeah, getting um, judged as a person. Yes. yes. And you're so... Um, yes. Not anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you aren't in surgery either. I mean, mm. when you're doing an operation, mm. it's very public. You know, what happens is obviously very mm. public. But it's that you're on television and on radio. It's a much bigger audience. Yeah, yeah. So what was the outcome of all of that? So I was very lucky that I got, uh, because it could have ended horribly, mm. um, I got a huge amount of positive, uh, a huge positive response. Yeah. And first of all, the College of Surgeons denied 
any of it. You know, they said this is absolutely impossible. She's ridiculous. How dare she say these things? It's it's appalling. And then 12 women anonymously um, contacted Fairfax Media and said, yes, this had happened to them. And that's when it all turned round. And it was not Caroline 12 times. No, no. It, it, was, it was not. It was no. <laughs> Caroline did. Caroline is a very private person and she didn't want to really. She did then... Um, she then was interviewed and um, did give her story but no it was 12 other women and as a result the College of Surgeons sort of um, decided to grab the bull by the horns and they set up a um, and a look into not only sexual harassment mm. but bullying and discrimination because a lot of the international the overseas medical graduates complained about discrimination yeah. So they did, and they appointed an external advisory group of some very notable people, and they ran this very impressive um, uh, in, uh, campaign, intervention, whatever you want to call it, where they asked everyone, mm. uh, internet, paper, all, all sorts of media, mediums, as to, as to whether they'd experienced any of these things. And the results were damning you know 50 percent yeah. said that they had suffered from bullying i personally what i was concerned about was sexual harassment yeah. i think it absolutely abhorrent that your job should depend on whether you have sex with someone or not abhorrent i think that they have made a mistake and opened a can of worms in terms of the bullying problem because they've now they're now in a situation where a trainee can claim that a boss has bullied them mm. and uh, the boss is now in trouble so the bosses are in some ways a bit frightened of the trainees now so the can of worms gets yeah, <laughs> now just very murky yes, it is murky yeah. but at least for caroline there was a somewhat happy-ish satisfying -ish um, ending. not really no. no unfortunately i mean the college of surgeons kind of came out with a, the the president even gave an apology to everyone mm. i apologize to everybody in the world oh. but it would have been it would have been far more impressive to me if he had phoned her mm. and said i am really sorry this happened to you and i'm going to help you get a job in a public hospital yeah. she still has never been able to get a job in a public hospital mm. and she still gets bullied but she has finished her training she did oh, no, manage she, to she overcome some obstacles no, no. she yes. she has a very successful Excellent. private practice yeah. and and yeah. you know nothing was going to stop her doing that because she was so intelligent yeah. and and determined she is she mm. is an an impressive woman she is yeah. so impressive and an impressive surgeon Absolutely. but she still doesn't have a great she hasn't had a great time she should be a professor mm. is what she should yeah. be and from what we discussed earlier um uh, we were chatting a little bit before the interview it sounded like she had to go through an enormous amount of struggle when her hand was forced and she had to report this whole thing just to get to where she is. So yeah. a huge amount of effort, um, but quite an achievement to finally overcome the uh, nasty man who had tried to do some unspeakable things. Exactly. And all, even though going through a legal process yeah. and the finding being in her favour and getting a um, uh, compensation, um, a monetary compensation because of what the judge saw mm. had um, harmed her career enormously, even despite that, she she called yeah. it a pyrrhic victory yeah. and um she you know in the end it didn't uh, i mean she she won but she didn't mm. win yeah. i mean it's better to have money than no money but it's kind of like 
look, you've been traumatized by seeing the private parts of a person you didn't really want to yeah. have some money. Exactly, yeah. And nobody wants to know you now. Mm. Yeah, which is one of the problems that the trainees are still afraid of making complaints through the complaints process that has been set up because it is seen that if you do, if you're a complainer, yeah. you don't get the job. Uh, it's reputational yeah. sort of. Because yeah. it's still a very small, it's a very small arena, mm. the surgical arena. So even though it's supposed to be um, anonymous, um, it's not really anonymous. And the college has acknowledged that it's not, it's by no means a perfect um, solution. I have, um, I now get lots of uh, calls from women asking for help and I have a sort of, um, informal network of people that I can Excellent. approach that help people out of situations and there I think that we are in a better partly because of the Me Too movement as well but I think that women are in a better situation in terms of getting on um, but there is also a bit of a backlash um, it's a bit hard to see how it's going to go I mean there are talk mm. there's, I've read articles where now it's reported that it's less likely that a woman will be appointed to a job because, and this is not in medicine particularly, but because they're afraid of what might happen if you know, there are reports of sexual harassment. Mm. So they'll just avoid um, appointing her altogether. So again, it works against yeah. women. Yeah. <laughs> it always works against women. Yeah. <laughs> it's very complex. Yeah, it is very complex. Yeah. But I do, um, I, I wouldn't let, I, it shouldn't put you off going into surgery. It's a fascinating <laughs> job. Um, and I think women do it terribly well. In fact, all the latest studies show that women are better surgeons than men. Ah. They are more careful about who they operate on rather than just looking at the money. They, <laughs> they are more holistic in whether this person really needs an operation. And then when they do the operation, their results are better. Mm. Um, so... I wonder um, if they make better podcasters too. <laughs> much much earlier, but, yeah, much earlier in this interview, now you were telling me if if you tell someone that they're obese, that it comes with a couple of things. Like you know, one is telling it to them gently and then giving them some solutions. So now you've told me that the system is a little bit broken and has many things wrong with it. So what solutions do we have? Well, one of the solutions I would love to see, mm. and it's already been created, is the black box in the operating theatre. Ooh. So an awful lot of these situations, and I had a situation where um, there was a nurse who was uh, operating with a, uh, uh, a fellow, mm -hmm. and he lost his cool, or, or he was just an unpleasant person, and he barged her, he <sighs> barged her with his arm. That's not very or, sterile. <laughs> well, but they were both in scrubs, so... Oh, it wasn't yeah, in the operating... Oh. It's in the operating, so they're operating oh, together, okay. and he pushed <laughs> her to the side, almost knocking her over. Wow. Now, she complained, but really nothing yeah. very much got done about it. If that had been recorded right. on CCTV... It wouldn't be he said, she said. Yes. It would be, we'd look at this. This has been, this black box, they're calling it the black box yeah. in theatre. So it records everything that happens in the operating theatre. It records also the patient's vital signs. 
mm. and um, a number of other things. So you have everything that's going on, a bit like a cockpit. Yeah. So, I mean, not just from a political point of view, who's abusing who and who's bullying who, it's also to figure out if they yeah. deteriorate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what went wrong in certain yeah. situations where things go wrong. So it was created by a guy in Toronto, Canada. Yeah. It's been adopted by a number of countries, including the last one I think was the Netherlands. And what they do is they sit down afterwards and replay the the stuff, the, the footage, mm. and go through it. And almost all bad outcomes are due to communication problems. And it may not be, um, you know, the, the situation I was yeah. telling you about where it's a, a nasty guy hitting mm. the nurse. It's just poor communication for some reason. Well, you can then identify that um, a little bit like in the cockpits previously, yeah. the co-pilot was terribly scared of saying anything to the pilot that's beca- right. because remember? of the hierarchy. Yes, that's because right. of the hierarchy. Yeah. And they'd you know, identified that uh, a co-pilot knew that they were flying into a mountain, but just didn't yes. dare say we're flying into a mountain. I think that was in, in Korea. It's mentioned yes. in the checklist manifesto yes. by Atoll Gowanda. Yes, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. So it would do the same thing. So we would then have objective proof of what's going on and how the um, communication is. And that would give you something really objective. So I would yeah. love to see that happen. Yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great? Though at first when you said black box, I just had this image of everyone wearing some kind of suit. And so it would be like... Uh, anonymous surgeon would be doing <laughs> doing the operation and you would just see their outside you know you know what I mean kind of like the power rangers or something. Okay. I thought that was but this is like even better so this is great I mean you know you can you can argue that um every part of our lives is on CCTV but you know it is mm. you know um all of our gadgets That's are right. being recorded etc yeah. so why is not record good? the is right thing yeah, yeah exactly you know yeah. we, we can't get away from it we may as well use it yeah. and I think it's one of the better things to use it for they do say that you know you won't capture all the bullying of course you won't capture all the bullying but it will it would also work for patient safety um and it would go a long way to helping um, communication issues yeah Yeah. all right and what about on a personal level do you have any advice for for people in medicine just people in life in general how do you be a good person how do you be a good doctor rather than the you know how do you deal with bullying but just how do you as a person make this world a better place with my fist in the air (laughs) i i think um kindness um there's uh, a wonderful woman called Catherine crock who runs an organization that is about kindness in medicine i think we need to care about our patients we need to care about everyone we come in contact with Mm. um i mean particularly our patients but also all your staff or your um, juniors or your yeah every yeah you you don't have to do it on a global scale but if you can do it on an individual scale every day life is so much better yeah you should thank your psychic yeah. secretary you know you should yes. thank the people in the street <laughs> yeah just the little micro yeah. interactions, interactions like kind of starts at home yeah, that's absolutely sort of yeah excellent i think that is that's the way to make lo- the world a better place yeah. is re- really to care right yeah. and for those who are interested in vascular surgery, what's a final piece of advice for those wishing to climb to the top of the vascular ladder? Um, good interventional skills. I would advise probably that you become an interventional radiologist instead. <laughs> Live out your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but let's say their heart is set on vascular. What, what should this person do? Well, um, uh, yeah. 
essentially it's all about going through the hoops and there are hoops there are endless hoops <laughs> and you just have to go through them um so it's don't all, give up no, don't yeah. give up um it's all about research you know we're dead keen on research mm. um that that's kind of puts you ahead of the pack but um uh, is also a very fascinating one of the best things I ever did was my masters in London that was fabulous um, and uh, just never give up yes excellent like one of those what is it the energizer battery yeah say die yes. I don't know what the Duracell bunny <laughs> slogan is but you know energizer never say die excellent yeah. Sounds good. all right thank you so much for a very riveting and very wise interview it's been fantastic having you on the show oh, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been Lily it's really lifted the afternoon <laughs> excellent it's very that's very kind of you to say actually so kindness starts with podcasts yeah. <laughs> all right so thank you to Dr. Gabrielle and thank you to the listeners thank you to everyone who supported the podcast a big shout out to ben murray who's an excellent fan of ours and, and still saying nice things about me and the podcast mainly me <laughs> so so thank you all and we'll see you on the next episode <laughs>